Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash, making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no Welcome to Escaping Society, Episode 8, Getting It On and Getting Along. I'm Teresa. And I'm Gumby. And I just wanted to warn all of our listeners that this episode contains sexual content. We're actually going to be talking about sex and acknowledging that sex exists and sex happens. And probably if you're listening, you are a product of a sexual encounter, even if you're a test tube baby. Um... One of your parents might have been a hand. You nasty gummy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, actually, you know, I, I say that in a joking way, but it's kind of interesting that in our culture, um, we're surrounded by a lot of violent acts, and it's not just the military. It, people are quick to think about, well, I'm not killing anything, but our culture and our mindset is such that there's violence all around us, and it's accepted, like all the killing of people other than us, species other than us, nature that's separate from us is the way we look at it. And children are surrounded by all of this violence, all of this war and and murder. And yet we seem to be okay with that, but talking about sex, which is a natural act of propagating the species, is still taboo. Gumby, do you have anything else to say about that? Yeah, I first saw a meme. I wish I tried to find it and I couldn't find it. It was attributed to John Lennon, but I don't know if he actually said it because you know how memes are. Um, but yeah, it really pointed out that we shut our doors, you know, to make love, and yet we broadcast war on our televisions and you know just really glorify that. So, you know, I just invite the listeners to really think about that for a minute. You know that we don't shy away from the idea of killing somebody for some ideal of patriotism. Um, or money-making, or profit, but a natural act, something that we all do, we are all products of. You're not here unless there's been sex that has happened. Um, we still have this antiquated ethic about hiding that, this taboo around it, and like so much else in our society, think about unhealthy and how unhealthy and bizarre that is. And uh, to add to the warning, you know, this uh, podcast in particular, if any of our parents or, or grandparents are listening, you are not going to hurt our feelings if you turn off this podcast like right now and decide this one isn't for you, because we are about to get jiggy with it. Oh, that means talk about sex lives. <laughs> jiggy defined. Mm. So let's get on with getting it on. Um, you know, in lieu of thinking about like how taboo sex is, you know, there's so many activists now and so many protests trying to push the edges of the way people think. And uh, 
I gotta say, I don't, I don't find myself in support of most protest movements. I feel like they're almost more distracting than helpful. They're dealing with like a little drop when there's a blazing fire over here that everybody, protester, cop, everybody involved, it seems content to ignore. Um, but consider a sexual protest. You know, what if everybody just got together with their partners, whatever you think your appropriate partner is, and just staged a widespread orgy? We just <laughs> all had sex in a public place and decided this is a natural, healthy part of our humanity, and we just got arrested for having sex, and as soon as somebody else gets, gets arrested, two other couples show up and have sex. <laughs> now, that would be a protest I would think was really worthwhile. If I saw that happen on TV, I'd be like, right on, you know? Like, sex needs to be brought into the light so we can talk about it, we can get better at it, and uh, of all the things getting repressed, let's not repress this. It's Every other species does it. Everything does it. So, orgy. Um, <laughs> As protest. And another aspect of um, getting it on is I think a lot of people, and I used to think this too, thought that if you've ever had the idea across your head, and I would imagine some of our listeners have had this idea, which is maybe why you're listening to these podcasts, um, of being a hobo, of just hitting the road, of being a tramp, of being homeless, of giving it up. And one of the things I used to be worried about is how will I ever have a girlfriend? This is when I was a teenager and a kid, and I'd think about, all right, you know, hit the road, be a hobo, but I guess that means I'll never be married, I'll never have a wife, I'll never have a girlfriend, I'll probably never have sex. Um, and that is not true, that by following your path, if you're drawn to that, um, there can be homeless sex. You know, those homeless people out there, like, yep, those hobos are getting busy. Um, it is more difficult. I can talk about my own experience. Um, in 1998, when I took off to be a hobo, I hitchhiked on my own. Um, I was out for a year. I went up to Alaska. I did all this, these things, and I'd see all these beautiful places, these sunsets, these rainstorms. And day after day, um, the loneliness got to me. I didn't have anybody to turn to and like talk about it at the end of the day. Like, did you see that? Like, did, wow, look at that sunset. It was always just me, and I got really lonely. And I'd say if there's one thing that brought me back home and caused me to give that up in 1998 and wind up getting a job and, you know, getting back into the rat race, it was that idea of loneliness. But I'll tell you, in hindsight, something that I've discovered is I was dealing with loneliness before I hit the road. I had some friends. Um, you know, there was definitely more isolation on the road, but I struggled with loneliness. I struggled with a lot of those same issues. And when I came back home, just joining the rat race did not make the loneliness go away. Consider Tinder. Consider all the dating sites. Consider how often we feel isolated, like with all this damn social media around. We've got 500 friends and yet wonder what to do with ourselves on a Saturday evening. Um, the loneliness is prevalent in our society. So I really want to argue against that, that if you feel drawn to hit the road, I think you're more apt to find somebody that shares your values mm -hmm. and that you're going to become more attractive to whatever group of people that you want to be attractive to because you're somebody that has the guts to follow your path. That definitely happened to me. Um, one of the last times I was homeless, I was living out of my car, I was single, and I did more dating during that time than I ever did when I had a full-time job and I had an apartment. Um, I just didn't really stand out. I was like every other Joe Schmo, you know, clocking in, clocking out, trying to make money to still feel poor, 
Occasionally I could buy some little trinket that was supposed to show everybody how successful I was, but I just looked like every other, you know, Joe Schmo out there buying the trinkets and trying to look successful. But when I was homeless, living out of my car, um, that was definitely a truer path for me. And I found that when I met women, I had more confidence. I was more myself, and that showed. I was more attractive to the opposite sex. So I would actually visit, like, I didn't want to be in a permanent relationship at that time. I had been in a committed relationship, and it had fallen apart, and I was devastated. I wanted to date. I wanted to improve my sexual experience. So I got out there, and I dated as much as I could. And a lot of these friends that I was making, um, I could go over and take a shower. So this was an excuse to go visit them. I'd have sex. I'd take a shower, and it wasn't like I was using them. They understood, you know, what I was doing. I was living out of my car, and a shower was beneficial. And it was kind of a beautiful part of my lifestyle at the time. Um, I would say, like anybody else who's done a lot of casual dating, there's a loneliness to that, too, that's no different whether you're homeless or whether you're kind of doing it the more approved route of, you know, having your job and all the things you're supposed to do. Um, But you can decide that for yourself. I don't look back on that time with any regret. I bring that up just to, uh, I guess, convey that you don't have to be home uh, lonely because you're homeless. It all depends on how you do it. Just like having a job, it all depends on how you do it, whether you're lonely or not. So don't let that get in your way. You said it was kind of like being a tomcat. Yeah, it was definitely like being a tomcat. And at that point in my life, like, I'm glad I did it. I wanted to do it. I did it. And like everything else, there are pros and cons. You know, it's exciting to have a lot of different sexual partners and I think there's a time in your life that's kind of a natural time to explore that, to figure out what sex is, how to be better at it, what you like and don't like. Um, There were things that I thought I liked until I tried them and discovered, oh, I actually don't like this. It was the fantasy I liked, not the reality. Um, And I got to explore all that as a homeless person living out of my car. And I was respected by a lot of the women I met. If you're going to the club and, you know, you're in the scene where you're at the club and you're trying to get the girls with the giant eyelashes, the like six inch eyelashes and wearing the the booty pants and they want to see how much money you're going to spend on them. Yeah, you're probably not going to get them anymore if you're homeless. But you know, how much joy are they really bringing you anyway? And if the answer is a lot, well, keep doing that. (laughs) Um, Another thing that I was thinking about as far as getting it on is sex ed. I remember taking sexual education in middle school, and there was this, like, really dry, well, I shouldn't say dry, considering what I'm about to say next, um, really boring woman that was kind of talking about sex ed, and it was all anatomy, and it was all sexual prevention, and there was no joy in sex ed. And consider how much sexual dysfunction is in our culture. We're all trying to have sex, but... I know from my own experience of talking to people and dating, um, how many women are not pleased, and men for that matter, have lost the spark. Um, And I think probably everybody here in this can at least identify with a time in their life, if it's not right now, of a time that sex was not what you wanted it to be. And I think there's so many reasons for that, but I think some of them could have been addressed back in that sexual education class. For instance... Um, some things I've learned through reading books, because I started reading every book I could on sex, and there was a lot of like intellectual, like, yeah, whatever, you know, and most of the books didn't agree, but I got a few good tips, and I wish that would have been taught to me. For instance, female anatomy. Um, 
They separated the guys and the girls for sex ed. They should have had a big picture of a vagina. And if it wasn't a drawing, an actual photograph, even better. Because we would have remembered that. Most guys don't know that a vagina is the inside of a woman's anatomy. They don't know about inner labia, outer labia. Um, women like to joke about, oh, this, men can't find the clitoris. But how many women are showing them where the clitoris is? And from my experience, women, many women, don't know their own anatomy. You know, it's just kind of one of these things we like to talk about. It's when women get together, they make fun of guys not knowing more about sex. Um, and guys, you know, like when we think about when we're in our sexual encounters, how many women are uncomfortable with their own anatomy? Um, and this is something that doesn't get addressed in sex ed. Oral sex. There's a great book called She Comes First by Ian Kerner. And I don't know, like, what classes this guy took. He talks about, like, performing oral sex on a woman for over an hour as a standard practice. I don't know if he does tongue aerobics every morning or <laughs> how that works. But I did appreciate some of the tips, like uh, <laughs> the tip. Um, but, like, the importance of oral sex, um, especially for a woman, you know, I've heard it said that there are many women, maybe a higher percentage, um, like over 50%, that can't get off unless they have oral sex performed on them. So as a guy, it's important to know how to do this. And a lot of women are so embarrassed that, you know, it's hard to match the shyness of a woman with the ego of a man. A guy doesn't want instruction. You know, that makes him feel very emasculated if it's done in the wrong way, and he loses his sex drive. You know, if he feels like a little goofy boy that is getting in, uh, taught how to do something, he's not going to feel very sexy. And if a woman is feeling like very, uh, like she's a teacher, you know, a lot of times that'll kind of suck the sexual pleasure out for a woman, too. It's got to be done in the right way, but it needs to be done. People need to be taught this. And I've ran into a lot of women that are insecure about performing fellatio on a man. Um, it's been so rare that I've um, had a sex partner that does that, that can, per that can perform good fellatio, that it's something that I don't even think of as it really turns me on anymore. Um, and again, what a joy that would be to set it up where that could be something we practice. It's not something that drains us, that demasculates us but that we can just practice with joy together, like two children, you know, that feeling of playing doctor when you were a little kid. Um, it could be a very pleasurable educational thing, but that's not what we're taught. We're taught anatomy. We're taught condoms. We're taught all these things that are supposed to prevent diseases, but guess what? We're still getting diseases, things that could possibly prevent overpopulation, but guess what? The earth is still getting overpopulated, um, but not things that treat sex as the joyous thing it could be. Uh, another thing I picked up that I wanted to pass along. Um, it's called The Nine of Nines, and I can't remember the book I got it from. It was something about like the Taoism, Taoism of sex or something like that. But apparently this is a technique that's very old from some part of the Orient, and this is something that could have been taught in sex ed. Um, when you're having intercourse for a guy, most of the sensitive nerves, nerves of a woman's vagina are in the first two or three inches of her vagina. So guys spend a lot of time, and we're taught to worry about this through porn, about the size of their penis. Um, 
you could have a penis so small that you're not penetrating those first three inches, and that guy might have to find other things to do. But for most of us, average penis, as long as we know how to do it, it does the job. It's um, A woman can definitely feel what we're doing down there if we take the time and do it right with the right attitude. Um, the nine of nines is a technique where you take your penis and you insert it about one or two inches, just the tip, and you go back and forth for nine times. It's a meditation. And because you're counting, like I wondered, why not 10? Nine makes you count. Nine makes you pay attention. 10, you can almost do that automatically. So it becomes a way of focusing. Your mind's not wandering. So nine penetrations with just the tip, and then eight penetrations with just the tip, and one full penetration all the way. And then you count down. Next round, uh, seven penetrations with just the tip, and two deep all the way penetrations. Then six, just the tip, three all the way penetrations, until there's nine all the way penetrations, and then you reverse it. Now eight full penetrations, one just the tip. Um, I know that sounded complicated. You can play that back and, you know, but the whole point of it is it is kind of complicated. And so it becomes a meditation. And I have found that to be a very erotic practice. And um, I find that women enjoy that. You know, just the tip, it kind of stimulates, stimulates, teases. And this is something guys don't tend to be very good at, that women have much more understanding about the eroticism of subtlety and stimulation. Guys, you know, we're just taught to be like machines, go in there, get off, we're fine. And it's hard not to fall into that. Speaking as a guy, it's really hard not to fall into that. This is a practice that'll help you try something else. And it also makes you feel bigger to the woman. Because by the time you do the full penetration, um, you know, she's gotten used to that subtle, nice stimulation. You're working up, you're working up. And then when you go all the way in, it's more satisfying than if you just go in like you're a machine, a, a carpenter hammering at a nail right from the get-go. So try that. Nine of nines. You'll thank me. One comment about that, guys. Don't tell the woman what you're doing because if you ever do it again, I guarantee you she's going to be counting and not enjoying it as much. So just keep that in mind. Keep it a little secret. <laughs> between you and your cock. Hmm. Hadn't thought about that. <laughs> um, in one of my former relationships, every relationship I've been in has been tumultuous. I'm just a type of person that does not fit smoothly into a relationship, and that has been a pattern with every relationship I've tried to have, a monogamous long-term relationship. Um, but my first really serious relationship, we started having sexual dysfunction. I called it conquest sex at the beginning. It's exciting because it's new. It's a conquest. It's... You know, just everything's new, everything's exciting. If you stay with a woman long enough, and I think a lot of couples from people I've talked to understand this, even if they don't use my terminology, something starts wearing off, and it's a time when you kind of get worried. What's going on? How come my partner is not stimulating me as much anymore? How come I'm not stimulating her? Have we lost the spark? Are we not supposed to be together? It starts just opening up all the insecurities in the relationship. Um... And it's definitely a troublesome time. And when that first happened to me, I was lucky to be with a partner who was willing to, instead of just indulge in the insecurities, look at it like a problem. How can we fix it? So we went and got a book. And luckily, the first book we grabbed is a great book. 
Men are from Mars, Women are from Venus, in the bedroom. It's the sequel to the famous first book by the same author, John Gray. And if I remember right, this guy was like a monk or something, and he decided he was going to write a book of sex, and he started meeting with women like at a bar or whatever and told them what he was doing. He was wanting to study sex. And that was his line. Genius. He actually got to explore sex by telling women he's writing a book. And a lot of women are like, oh, I'd love to help you explore that. So I don't know if that's something that works for any other guy, but I was kind of fascinated it worked for somebody. That was kind of erotic in my fantasy world just to know that this guy had done that. Um, but there was a lot of insights that both for me and my partner in this book um, about the way the women work versus men. For instance, men... We tend to like our penis played with like pretty soon and to have the rest of our body brought into it afterwards. Women tend to be the opposite. They like their shoulders rubbed, cuddling, you know, and then their genitals stimulated afterwards. Um, men tend to like to be physically stimulated, brought in physically, and then the emotions tend to follow. They tend to have emotions follow that physical eroticism where women tend to be, this is a big generalization, the opposite. Women want to feel emotionally stable and secure, um, and then the physical act follows that. I find that I lean more towards the feminine side um, more than a lot of men. I actually need to be seduced more than other men. I'm not a guy... When I first started dating, I tried casual sex. I was shocked that I couldn't get it up the first time I tried that. There was no seduction. I didn't know I needed that. That's one of the things I learned about myself. Um, I thought it would just be like all the pornos I'd seen. I'd go in there, you know, play the pizza guy. Hey, here's your pizza. And, you know, <laughs> go at it. And it wasn't like that for me. That's just the way I work. So a lot of the things in that book that were more f female stuff are actually true for me. Hmm. Um, there was some stuff that both my girlfriend and I at the time thought was funny that was definitely leaning towards the man. Like um, it said, if you're a woman, don't say no, even if you don't want to have sex. Like, go along with the guy. I've actually read another book where a woman says the same thing. So I don't know. I wouldn't say that myself. Um, it, it sounds very one-sided. It is very one-sided, but maybe consider, because I know that's true for me too. Sometimes I don't want to have sex and my partner does, but you know, you can really get into a selfish place if that's the, the, the defining time. I want to have sex. It doesn't matter when you want to have sex. So there's something to be said for both partners going along with it when their partner is feeling it, if you can. It can be a really difficult thing. And I'll, I will also add, I haven't read this book, but um, just from my own experience, what really is damaging to the sexual relationship as well as the overall relationship is not like not respecting or appreciating the person. And if you are just going to have casual sex, then find whatever level of respect you want to give yourself and your sex partner. But for a longer-term committed relationship, um, it's really important, at least for me, to have those things in place, like Gumby was saying, you know, rubbing the shoulders or some something else other than just, like, penetration. But also the emotional aspect, like he was saying, that that's the setup that is particularly uh, that that really gets me interested to have sex, not just like fighting and then, hey, do you want to have sex or um, ignoring and, you know, not getting along and then, hey, do you want to have sex? It doesn't it doesn't really work. So just keep that in mind if you're 
trying to have a committed relationship with someone for an extended period of time. Yeah, and I've actually had women that I think are trying to lean more towards what they think guys want, and it doesn't work for me. I've had women be too bold with me. Um, think like the way to have sex with me is just to like start talking dirty right out of the gate and like grab my cock. And for me, that doesn't work. It's just a complete turnoff. I'm like, oh, you know, that's, that's just not what I want. And again, it's my wiring. It's not what I thought I wanted. You know, if I'm just sitting by myself, I'd think, wow, that'd be hot. The reality of it is that does nothing for me. <laughs> so um, that's a tip to the ladies, too. Like, think about your partner. The things you think your partner wants, consider, does it work? If it's continually not working, both men and women, try something else. Maybe get a book. So we're going to give you a few titles that have uh, we've found value in. Oh, something else. It's it's along the same lines, but I just thought it was a good uh, metaphor. So we made a YouTube video on how to start. <laughs> oh, what? How to... As soon as you said YouTube video, I bet. <laughs> oh, whoa! <laughs> not about sex. It was how to start a one match fire, and oh, yeah. we talk about starting a fire and then you've got this little baby fire and what does it need? It needs oxygen. It needs heat, meaning that the the fuel needs to be together. And of course it needs food just like a baby does. So with a relationship, whether it's the sex or the, the whole overarching relationship, again, you have to observe. And just because the fire in this metaphor might need food or fuel Sometimes it doesn't mean that that works all the time. And sometimes you can give it too much oxygen and blow the whole fire out. So you have to be observant and kind of roll with the other person because one thing doesn't always work all the time for every situation. Yeah, and we've had a lot of ground we want to cover here, and I keep thinking about more technique stuff that I'd love to talk about. So, oh, man, let's see. One thing that I I feel like I I would be remiss in not bringing up is lubrication. Um, just like guys, you know, if you, ladies, if you love a guy and there's something happening in his life where like he's prematurely ejaculating, that's not really been a problem I've had, or he's not getting it up, that has been a problem I've had. Um, try things with him. You know, you got to be really delicate with a guy. Don't take his masculinity away. Don't make him feel like something's wrong. Make it feel like you guys just need to try something else. Um, you can get there. Um, I've had a lot of um, different relationships, and I found that if I keep troubleshooting, I get there. I get that problem out of the way. Ladies, you guys get dry sometimes, and guys, you got to really be the same thing. Be gentle with your partner about that. You know, like it can be really frustrating. You're ready to go, and she's dry, and then you got to feel like, what the hell am I doing wrong? What the hell is wrong with her? What's wrong with us? Whew, that can be time to take a break and just like try it as gracefully as you can, maybe cuddle a little bit and then like work on it together. Um, I like water-based lubricants. Don't like the, what is it, Vaseline-based or whatever it is, oil-based. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've used coconut oil. Coconut oil is an awesome thing. And by the way, when you're having that oral sex, taste can be a really hard thing to address. There's a lot of things going on down there for a woman. And sometimes that is not a very erotic taste for a guy. And how the hell do you bring that up? Because I've tried to bring it up. You know, what I thought was reasonably did a lot of damage. (laughs) That is a delicate topic. But if you can somehow, like, introduce – and this is true for a guy, too. The taste of his semen changes with what he eats. So pineapple juice, both for men and women, can improve the taste down there. Things like beer. I love beer, but it makes you bitter down there. Um – and coconut oil. 
I've known at least uh, one woman that before she goes on a date, puts coconut oil on there like in preparation, and she's addressing the taste just in case it happens, you know, so you don't have that awkward moment where everything's going good. You go down there and realize like, oh, dang, I really do not want to do this. This is like the guy's feeling like this is not the time. The girl's feeling like, oh, my God, why did he stop? Whew, try to avoid those awkward moments. Prepare. Um, did you want to say something? You look like you're about to say something for that. I forgot. Okay. <laughs> it, the, the moment has passed. <laughs> and as far as escaping society, like when we talk about escaping society, society is a huge web of multi-layered things, um, misplaced beliefs, um, just things that don't work, that we keep trying to make work. And sex is just one of them, which is one of the reasons why we're talking about this on this podcast. Um, not just because, like, we like talking about sex, and I do like talking about sex, but because it's relevant. We have these antiquated sexual values, especially in this country. Other countries laugh at, at us, other European countries, you know, about how sexually repressed we are. And I feel like when you repress, repress a natural part of our humanity, it blows up in really perverted, ugly ways. I think that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, and I've talked about objectification, but also sexual repression, why we have rape to the scale that we do, why we have child pornography, why we have um, just all the sexual dysfunction is because we try to bottle it up. Look at the Catholic Church. You know, these preachers, they're not supposed to have sex. Did sex go away? Hell no. They start, like, molesting little boys. I feel like a big part of that is they're not recognizing their full humanity. There is something to be said for abstinence. Um, I'm not, like, saying there's anything wrong with that, but I think it has to come from you. You have to feel that. Some of the times when I felt the most spiritual in my life are when I backed away from relationship, um, monogamous relationship and sex. I've had more energy. I've had more energy to direct towards other purposes. So I am not uh, criticizing that whatsoever. But if you're not feeling it, if it's imposed on you, if you once thought that was what you wanted to do and it's not working anymore, freaking back out before it blows up into some perverted form. When I started teaching at camp, sometimes there were uh, like teenagers and they'd be our counselors in training. And they were young women. They were, what, 14, 15? Now, if I'm honest with myself as a man, these women were very attractive, sexually attractive young women. I would work with guys that would avoid that to such an extent that I felt like it was unhealthy. I felt like this is one of those guys that he's ignoring it so much that this is a guy that would have some kind of blowout. Um, and by that, I mean like it might go into a dark territory. I felt it was much more empowering to acknowledge that and then just to realize that that is not a path that leads to anything good or healthy. Um, so yeah, just avoiding sexual repression as much as you can. And my dog is letting me know somebody's here. We're in a picnic shelter in North Carolina right now in the heat of the Piedmont, and it is hot doing summer camps. Um, yeah, and another thing that Teresa should probably be talking more about this than me, but I'm going to bring up, is liberating women's bodies. So there's a lot of talk out there about men making decisions about women's bodies, and I don't want to get into the whole abortion debate um, I've got my own views on that, and it really doesn't matter what my views are as far as this goes. But I would encourage women to get more assertive with that role. For instance, 
I've heard it brought up how unfair it is that men get to be topless at a beach and women, it's actually an illegal act to take off your top. I agree. That is freaking ridiculous. And I say that as a heterosexual male that would love to see more breasts around. But I also say that as a human being who believes in justice. (laughs) Women, why don't you start taking off your tops? (laughs) Like, I'm serious. You know, I say that sometimes when I'm joking, but I also say that seriously. Why isn't there not a movement? Um, I think one of the things that makes that such a sexual thing, um, as we alluded to in um, Fight for the Right to Potty, that it's not a sexual thing to, like, get caught taking a pee. We make it that way because we hide it in taboo. And so it's got all this veil of mystery around it. I think if women started going topless, like, just, we refuse. No, this is not a just law. I'm going topless. That woman gets arrested. Two more go topless until there's a wave. I think that would get normalized so damn fast. Uh, guys, think about a long-term partner you've had. You've seen her topless many times. At first... It was this really significant thing. Then you still might find it attractive, but it's normalized. It doesn't, like, create this urge in you. And, uh, yeah, let me pass this off to Teresa. I feel very funny being a guy talking about liberating women's bodies. Is there anything you want to say to that? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've thought about this at different points in my life. I'm not particularly... Um, satisfied with the way my body looks. I've exercised a lot and still not been satisfied. Um, some women just happen to just look better than me. So I just feel like, why would I want to expose that out into, you know, the world and just show like my, (laughs) my insecurities? I don't know. But at the same time, I also feel like if I want to be able to be topless, it shouldn't be a crime. Like, if I feel like at this moment, maybe there's not that many people around and I just feel like I want to go swimming without a top, why can't I just do that? Why is that such a big deal? I mean, I don't think it's really a big deal for most men, but even then, like, you were talking about these sexually repressed things that people say, like, oh, no, I I would never find that attractive. I mean, everybody's different. I just feel like for me... Um, I do go skinny dipping and if somebody happens to see me, oh well, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Skinny dipping. I've always been really shy. I was that kid that, uh, during gym class in high school, I never like got naked for the shower. I was too insecure. Um, I guess I've just reached a certain age now where we go skinny dipping all the time. And I actually got caught the other day by a girl walking down the trail. And I guess I've just come to accept I've got what I've got. I am who I am, you know? Um, and if you think a world where women are going topless or guys are going naked more would work against you, you're not really hiding anything. The, the, the fact of the matter is there are more attractive people than whoever is listening to this. You've got other strengths, though. That's just true. I, I would imagine it's true in any tribe, you know, like when everybody's going topless, like you see these African tribes, everybody's going topless. Like, what does that turn into? You know, like, is it just all the women with the perfect breasts that are getting the guys? I don't think so. Any more than if you're wearing a shirt, you know, a guy can't tell the shape of a woman's body underneath that. I think there's always going to be different strengths. For some people, it'll be physical attraction. For other people, it'll it'll be a great personality, humor, generosity. Um, But yeah, and we really need to shift our values. We have too many superficial values about the surface of things. But yeah. Oh, is there anything else you wanted to add again to the sexual liberation of women's bodies? 
before we move on? Uh, I mean, I guess I'm just of the mindset, if you feel like doing it, do it. Um, just remember that because we come from a sexually repressed society, if you do something, there may be a consequence. Doesn't mean that it's okay for someone to rape you if you're wearing skimpy clothes, but just know, like there was a situation the other day where there was maybe a 15-year-old girl who was wearing bunny ears, I believe, and shorts that um, her butt was coming out of, like you could see butt cheek. And I noticed that like she was with her parents and her dad was sitting separate from them. And I feel like that I wanted to talk to that girl. Like I, I felt like, wow, if I could have somewhere to talk with her and just be like, you know, I understand you're coming into your sexual being. Just know that your father's sitting over there because he's not comfortable with how you're not only dressing, but how she was like writhing around on the bench. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've talked. Arching her back and stuff. I've thought a lot about right versus responsibility. There's a lot of talk nowadays about you have the right to and we have the right to. First of all, nobody has the right to anything. These are human inventions. If there were uh, intrinsic rights, then a tree would have a right to exist mm-hmm. without being cut down and turned into lumber. A piece of land would have a right to its autonomy without some a hole signing a piece of paper and suddenly they own the land, whatever the hell that means. We invent rights. They're all skewed. There's no such thing as a right. But there is a such thing as a responsibility. I can I have the right to wear um, a loud outfit in the woods. But if I'm a hunter, I need to take responsibility for the effects of that. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna be able to sneak up on animals. That's just a fact. So Think about the attention you're drawing. Think about the energy you're drawing. You have a right to wear whatever you want. Nobody has a right to rape you. That's not what this is about. But if you're wearing things, and it's not about comfort, it's about sexuality. You want to be seen as a sex object. You're wearing things that like make you walk funny. They're so uncomfortable, and I've <laughs> seen this a lot, because you are so desperate to be seen sexually. What are you evoking? Sexuality. Nobody has a right to attack you or rape you, but... Take responsibility for your part in that situation. Um, I'd say that's true for all of us. And it's not about blaming the women getting raped and not the men getting raped. It's about we all need to come together, I feel like, in this. Um, Taking responsibility for our actions, whether we flip a light switch, everything we do, whether we go barefoot or wear shoes, what we're trying to draw from the world. And this is true with guys, too. You know, like, if I go into an interview and I wear my raggediest outfit, and I don't get hired, I gotta take responsibility for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I have evoked a certain thing from the people around me, and that's all I'm saying. That doesn't, whatever you wear, it doesn't justify anything. Um, any ugliness on somebody else's part. Um, and I guess that kind of ties into socialization. I feel like in general, we're losing the ability to socialize because it's all turning into simulation. Um, Whereas 100 years ago, you know, let's imagine the Great Depression, people would come together. People, especially when we hit hard times, are really good at coming together. Um, People would feed children in the neighborhood that weren't their own. People would reach out to neighbors, show up if they knew somebody was sick with a, a dinner made. You still see that sometimes. But I also see that unraveling, and I think our technology is largely responsible for that. Um... We've got social media where we've got like 200, 300 friends. And we think 
that takes the place of going to be around people, to see people. And we're all spreading out. We're a, a vehicle nation, a vehicle culture. So where our families are spreading out across the world, where instead of like face-to-face time, we have a little performance in front of a screen, you know? Maybe we're having a really rough day, but then we get on the screen and it's like, you know, the Gumby Show. I put on my little best face. Hell, this podcast is a form of that. Instead of talking to you directly, you're hearing my recorded voice. This is taking the place of a finite energy that we used to use to come together to be a tribe, to socialize. And um, I remember one ride we got when we were hitchhiking, this guy named Gino. It'd be awesome if he was listening to our podcast, but... He talked a lot about this. He gave us a ride into Vermont, and he said, they don't want us getting along. They don't want us talking to each other. Like, he, he was saying, like, just picking us up and giving us a ride and talking about some of the things wrong with our culture is a revolutionary concept, getting more so. Because one thing our culture doesn't want is us all getting together and not needing our culture. We could stop all this happening right now, but we don't because we're isolated because we're lonely and because we feel such a vacuous deficit in ourselves that we feel like we need the things our culture can provide. I can't build an airplane by myself. I can't take that trip in Europe in the summer. And I feel like I need that because my life is empty. I feel like I need something to fill these empty spots. I feel like I need social media. Um, You ever try to take a social media fast and feel that kind of weird feeling like there's part relief, but there's also like, oh my God, I don't know what's happening in the world. (laughs) What's happening in the world is what's happening in that room you're sitting in. That's what's happening in the world. The rest of it is simulation. It's somebody's interpretation of what's happening in the world. It's not reality. Um, So I feel like that's something we really need to fight is that loss of socialization. Um, And we all, every single one of us, are here on this planet studying the same thing, I believe. I sat down a long time ago in my early 20s, and I was like, What are some things that I think are universal truths that I bet 20 years from now I will still think they are true for everybody? I came up with this little list of five things. One of the things on that list is we all study relationship, everybody. If you're by yourself, maybe you're studying your relationship with a higher power. If you're a hermit, maybe it's your relationship with nature. If you're part of a couple... Um, It's really easy to think you are whoever you want to pretend like you are. But when you're having that reflected back to you through a partner, wow, that is really (laughs) instructive. There are so many moments that you think you're being totally reasonable and then your partner's feelings are hurt and you're like, well, how did I get here? I thought I was just being logical and now I hurt somebody that I care about. That's a powerful reflection. Um, But that study of relationship is a very profound thing. And I think about what I read in Buddhism, that the the root of suffering is the illusion, the attachment of self, that you are not an isolated individual. And this is what our consumer culture teaches us. You're not going to get a date unless you buy this special mouthwash and your breath smells good. Mm -hmm. You can show, like, what a carefree, successful person you are by buying this new car and breaking the speed limit on this mountain road and screw the deer. God help the deer that gets in front of you. Yep, by the way, and if you're worried about wrecking your personal car and your health, now we've got these sensors, and they'll do it for you, so you don't even need to pay attention. Um, And it's all self, it's all selfishness. So I feel like what we're all studying is the opposite of that, and that's what our culture is fighting us on, is this relationship. We are part of something bigger, and none of us act like it. 
If we acted like it, the world would not look the way it does. We're part of something bigger. This idea of self is bullshit. It's illusion. And you'll see it in every commercial. You'll see it in almost every movie you watch. Um, Just feeding that and not challenging that. So I've done a lot of talking. Let me pass this off to Teresa. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I really like what you said about that we all study relationship. And I can say that with our relationship with Gumby and I, um, that's really, I mean, that is one of the biggest reasons that I feel like he and I are together is not only do we complement each other in some ways, like having adventures together, but he is really, I mean, he has taught me so much about myself that I've never realized before. Uh, of course, we all, we all think like, I'm doing the best I can. Like, how could I possibly be rude to someone or how, you know, how am I annoying in ways? And I think when you get into a relationship where you're living in a van, (laughs) which I'll talk about more in just a minute, but when you get into a relationship with someone where you're spending a lot of time with them, like you really start to learn about yourself. So be prepared for that. When I go to my friend's houses now and, or whatever, like whenever we're just hanging out and talking to people that we don't even know, um, I also notice the relationship that we're learning from because we're living a life that is pretty different from most people that we encounter. And so just talking to Gumby every day, we pretty much agree on things, whether it's uh, pollution or you know conservation or animism, all these types of um, broader concepts. But when you start to branch out into the world and study your relationship with other, um, you start to realize that it can get kind of convoluted and hard to talk to someone because they're buying stuff that's ready-made from the store or they're buying anything in general, participating in the consumer culture. So that can be kind of a difficult uh, aspect of escaping society. But we all have to remember that you know nobody's perfect and getting along with these folks that aren't quite white to where you're at. It doesn't mean that you're better than them. It just means that they're at a different place. Um, So Gumby, you wanted to also talk about living in a van, that relationship and humility. Yeah. And getting along with Wetikos, like Wetiko is a word that we came across um, that has helped me kind of understand the situation I'm in a lot better. It's given me a word and words can be a powerful thing. Wetiko is a word that was introduced by a lot of the indigenous tribes, especially along the East Coast, and it was pronounced Wintico, Wetico, Windigo, depending on the tribe. But when our culture arrived on these shores, um, they were considered to have a mental illness, a disease called Wetico. And it wasn't unknown in a tribe, but it just hadn't been allowed to blow up and take over and define the tribe like our culture it did. It's a way of living that you feel like you can take and take and take and not give back that you don't acknowledge that we're all in this together, that you can have a car and your neighbor has no car, that you can have so much food you're getting fat and somebody's starving down the road. This is a Wetico culture. These are Wetico traits. These are things that have been normalized, and you might just shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, you know, that's, that's the way it is. That's life. We make that life. That has not been the life of the human species for the vast bulk of its history. This is something we're developing and honing and killing ourselves with. So, getting along with Wetikos, 
I struggle with this. I think one of the most important things we need if our, our world is to get healthy are tribes, small groups of people. Let's say, I don't know, maybe 150 people that can live and work together. That's what I feel like the world's going to return to if it ever returns to something healthier. Um, and I am super bad at that. I do not get along with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to hang out with people, and I hear somebody talk 10 minutes, and it's, you know, they're running their air conditioner when it's not even a hot day. They got lights on in the other room, and, like, nobody needs it. They, uh, they're they bragging to me about, like, how much money they're making and all the stuff they're buying with their new job, and I just don't have anything to say to these people, and I recognize <laughs> I need to get along with people, and I don't know how, so I have no solution to that. Um but I would make the effort. And like Teresa alluded to, one of the things that helps is reminding yourself that nobody's perfect. So it's really easy to see all the flaws as you see them in somebody else. I try to return to where I'm lacking. And that puts me a little more on the page of we're in this together. I'm driving a van. I don't have a light switch to leave on in another room right now, but I'm also using fossil fuels. Some of that pollution floating up in the air, trapping some of this greenhouse gas, it's mine. It's my contribution. So, um, yeah, finding that balance between identifying with the people around you and fighting them. Um, And I don't mean fighting them as individuals, but fighting them as the culture that they are helping uphold. It's a tricky thing. I hear about these shooters that come in and start shooting people, and I feel like I understand that feeling, and it's sad that there was no other way to fight our culture for that person than to lash out and just start shooting random people. So where is that line? You know, if we're all destroying the world, if we're all buying these products, if we're all doing it, who are the foot soldiers in this war that's killing us? Um, Yeah, just so, yeah, I don't know how to get along with people. Um, (laughs) But that's that's something we work on. That's something we're trying to identify with. And I try to be friendly. I try to listen to people. Um, as much as I can and withhold judgment as much as I can, which it depends on, <laughs> depends on the, the situation, how much I can do that. And something also that you said um, before, Gumby, is that talking to someone that maybe doesn't have the same point of view as you can help to strengthen your own arguments for next time when you encounter someone. Yeah, social media sucks because you can just unfriend somebody when they disagree with you. I see that happening over and over. Oh, that person disagreed with me. They're a troll. What a opportunity to grow that you just like passed on. Yeah, I I'm guilty of that too. Like I've unfollowed most everyone on Facebook, not because I dislike them. I just I don't want to deal with their stuff. So I'm still working on that um, for social media. I mean, if we're in person, I'm not gonna just walk away from you. I'll listen to you and try to respect um, and hear where you're coming from. Yeah, and being on the road, like hitchhiking, is a great opportunity to practice this. When I first started hitchhiking, I got a ride from North Carolina to Kansas with this trucker who called himself Hey Boy. And he was a Lewis and Clark interpreter. He uh, was a really cool guy. We were getting along great. And we passed this clear-cut forest. And uh, I said something negative about the lumber industry. Turns out his whole family is in the lumber industry. Oh, no. Awkward (laughs) silence for the rest of the trip. And I always regretted that. Like, I have my beliefs about the lumber industry, and I don't need to abandon those beliefs, but I didn't need to have that damage my relationship with this this guy. Um, so, yeah, 
any way you can get out there and be around people that aren't in your little incestuous bubble is a good thing. I see lots of groups of uh, people like, you know, homeschoolers, private schools, you know, and they're surrounding themselves with everybody who thinks the same. <clears throat> they never get to see the blind spots in their philosophy. Um, you get out there and you start hitchhiking, you get out there in any, any way that you can, like, be around people who don't think like you, it's going to help you delve deeper into your philosophy. You're going to be challenged, and that's a good thing. Because a lot of what we believe is just superficial propaganda until we get challenged and have to start asking some deep questions. Um, yeah, and Teresa and I, living in a van, people have asked us, how does that work? <laughs> it's challenging. We've broken up so many times, I don't even know what our status is right now. Me either. Um, we're just kind of winging it. But some of these things like humility, you know, recognizing I'm a damaged person coming from a really damaged culture, and so is she, and we got baggage, it helps us, like... <laughs> forgive quicker um maybe talk things out a little bit quicker rather than just writing each other off and i've seen so many people that they get in this dating site mindset where like oh we don't agree on that bye you know next person tinder and god what a horrible thing to be no wonder so many people are losing their minds and feeling like the people around them aren't even human and they've been written off and they become shooters or whatever god we are writing each other off it's horrible and Teresa and I try really hard not to do that, to, like, look at the rough spots. And sometimes those rough spots don't go away. It's just something you kind of resign yourself to, like, all right, I don't know what's going to happen with that. Let's wait and see. Let's have patience. Sometimes we figure it out, and it's not a rough spot anymore. But, yeah, having all this free time together every moment. Imagine being with your partner every moment in a little van. And, hey, let's take that van in the middle of summer down to one of the hardest, hottest places that we can be with mosquitoes because <laughs> that's going to be a honeymoon. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, all the, the benefit of being in a relationship with that reflection, I feel like we're taking the advanced course. And I don't know that we're always <laughs> ready, ready for it, but there is benefit to be had there. And, yes, it is challenging. Yeah, and, I mean, what Gumby has said has really covered a lot of how I feel about what it means to live in a van with your significant other, even if it's not your significant other, whoever you're living in an enclosed space space with is going to become, like, you guys are going to fight. You're not going to know what's what from moment to moment. It might change, and that can be really difficult. On the upside, we have a lot of adventures together and stories to tell, and I feel like along with learning about myself through the relationship with Gumby, I mean, those two things right there are, like, why would I want to do anything else? Why would I want to go back and work a job? It just doesn't make any sense to me when I'm learning and experiencing so much. Um, I mentioned, you know, we have tons of adventures together, backpacking, hitchhiking, etc., which you can read about on our website. Um, but there's also, you know, again, the challenges. So I wrote down privacy, uh, when you live in a van, yeah. When you live in a van, you know, going to the bathroom, I just tell Gumby, like, don't look, going, peeing. Um, I've bathing. seen so much. Yeah, too much. When you're bathing and grooming, I mean, like, I try to ask Gumby, like, can you just please give me some girl time to whatever, remove hairs in places that are embarrassing, or just, like, gross details of anything. I know I make <laughs> I make Gumby look up my nose after we bathe in the river, because I want to see Which if Which also makes me feel very sexy. <laughs> because I feel like if you're friends, you know, you don't have to pick the boogies. Just tell me if they're there. <laughs> hey, baby, that's one hot booger. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, so just the privacy aspect is really challenging. So maybe with your person, your partner, whatever, your significant other, you can start to hash out details of how that's going to look. Because I'm telling you right now, um, tweezing hairs out of places that maybe hairs shouldn't grow, your partner doesn't need to know that, especially if it's your sexual partner. It just, it kills the magic. Um, going from romantic to platonic, um, basically feeling like, you know, your brother and sister, uh, fighting along with that sibling, you know, just fights and feeling like, I don't know if this person really appeals to me anymore. That can happen. Um, and go, going along with uh, the topic of sex, no sex uh, with your partner and, <laughs> and how maybe your partner may be having sex, but not with you. <laughs> um, <laughs> segue to me. Segue to you. Take it away, Gumby. So masturbation. <laughs> like now I'm in comfortable territory. Um, okay. To master the debate. So... One thing I read that was very helpful <laughs> in uh, um, a lot of these books, and it would come up again and again. Like I said, there's not a lot of agreement in sex books, but some things are instructive to see that pe- most people do agree on. And sex therapist, if a guy is saying he has sexual dysfunction, any sexual dysfunction, premature ejaculation, impotence, one of the first things they ask is, are you masturbating? Masturbation um, or just not being aroused with your partner, not having as much sex. I um, definitely enjoy masturbation, and I think a lot of people, at first, there's all this embarrassment around it, and then you learn, like, oh, there shouldn't be. You know, masturbation can be healthy. It's safe sex. It's an outlet. helps you sleep. helps you relax. It can help with restless leg syndrome. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> For other people. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but then it's so easy to, like we do with so many things, to take something that can be good, overdo it. So if you're in a relationship, and every relationship I've been in, I've still wanted to masturbate sometimes. Masturbation is not equal to sex. It's a different kind of sex. So even if I'm having crazy sex every day, there's times I just want to be by myself and masturbate. You know, I still feel a hunger for that. It's my first partner, you know, and I I don't want to leave her lonely, old Brady. But... (laughs) Oh, I lost my train of thought when I brought up Brady. Uh-huh. I started thinking about her. Mm. Um, you can but know. sexual dysfunction, yeah. So if you stop doing that, you can build up sexual energy. It's like a, <laughs> it's kind of like you're leaking out like the semen is energy. You know, you can keep that, and it actually builds up, and you'll have more sexual energy. Um, I've seen this work in my own life, and I would just advise any guy, if your sex life isn't what you want it to be and you have a partner, um, Chill out on the masturbation, see what happens. Give it a few days. Um, One of the things we read, um, these Carlos Castaneda books about the teachings of Don Juan, and uh, one thing I thought was really interesting that has to do with relationship in this book goes, this is Don Juan talking. He said, the art of a hunter is to become inaccessible, he said. In the case of that blonde girl, it would have meant that you had to become a hunter and meet her sparingly, not the way you did. You stayed with her day after day until the one true feeling that remained was boredom. True? I did not answer. I felt I did not have to. He was right. To be inaccessible means that you touch the world around you sparingly. You don't eat five quail, you eat one. You don't damage the plants just to make a barbecue pit. You don't expose yourself to the power of the wind unless it is mandatory. You don't use and squeeze people until they have shriveled to nothing, especially the people you love. I have never used anyone, I said sincerely. 
but Don Juan maintained that I had, and thus I could bluntly state that I became tired and bored with people. To be unavailable means that you deliberately avoid exhausting yourself and others, he said. It means that you are not hungry and desperate like the poor bastard that feels he will never eat again and devours all the food he can, all five quail. Don Juan was definitely hitting me below the belt. I laughed, and that seemed to please him. He touched my back lightly. A hunter knows he will lure game into his traps over and over again, so he doesn't worry. To worry is to become accessible, unwittingly accessible. And once you worry, you cling to anything out of desperation. And once you cling, you are bound to get exhausted or to exhaust whoever or whatever you are clinging to. Mm-hmm. That was really good food for thought for me um, because I do that. And I think we're kind of taught that. That's sort of the movie romance, become completely accessible. We don't really see it role modeled much, somebody that's kind of really, truly self-contained. And because we don't know to find how to find the positive in that, if we meet somebody like that, we often will feel like they're not interested. We don't want to be around that person. <laughs> so we have a bunch of insecure people that are making themselves way too available. And God, when he described like getting bored with each other, doesn't that sound like every relationship in your past that hasn't worked? <laughs> that something just wore out until it was exhausting? And, you know, you can see it in your partner, but chances are you were kind of doing the same thing to them. And if they weren't ready to let go of the relationship, it might have just been habit and desperation because we do tend to bore each other. So when we're in a van together, wow, that's really challenging. We can't even go and do our separate thing much. Um, We're still working on that because I think we can. We just haven't necessarily found the way. Um, But, yeah, finding ways, even if you are spending time around each other a lot, to somehow emotionally, energetically not be so accessible. Hold something back. It's kind of like the difference between I've been in a strip club before and saw naked women um, dance, and after two hours, I was kind of thinking it would be more sexy to have them put some clothes back on. There's too much, I don't know, there's something, some pressure that builds, some way to build energy when you hold something back, and I think that's very true with being available. You got any thoughts on that, Teresa? I actually don't know how to do that at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Me either. You know, it's it's uh, it's one thing when you're living in separate places, and I will go on record to say that if I were to give anyone advice about living in a van, it would be like if you have two people that want to explore van life, I think you should get two vans. And I know that sounds retarded, but I'm telling you, it is very difficult to uphold that that tension. It just doesn't have anywhere to go. It's like a rubber band that's so stretched out that it will never go back to holding anything together. Um, <laughs> but enough about my optimism. But on the bright side. Uh, you know, that, that leads to talking about time apart. And I know we're going a little long here again on the, uh, the sex show. But... Time apart is so crucial to living um, with someone, whether that's in a big house or a tiny van or whatever you're, you know, just hitchhiking across America. You've got to have some time to yourself. Um, When we're sharing the van, I try to let Gumby know, like, I'm probably going to be hanging out with a friend for like three hours and, you know, my friend can either drive me somewhere or I could take the bus and meet you at this place at this time. Like I said, mystery and the spice of a relationship, I don't have a whole lot of good advice on that at all because I just don't know what I'm doing. But it seems like those two things are crucial to keeping your relationship strong with each other. 
um, mystery and spice and just time apart to just build that tension, like Gumby said. And uh, <laughs> Gumby, you didn't put a, your initial next to this, but spontaneous sex um, can also be helpful when you're living in a van. Um, well, because you're either going to be in your van, probably in a somewhat public place, or you're not going to be in your van in a probably somewhat public place because you don't have the privacy of a home. Yeah, there's something exciting about just grabbing your partner and diving behind a tree in the autumn at a park where you could get caught. <laughs> I'm just saying. And, just... and when you don't have your own bedroom, like you got to get pretty creative with sex. Like I said, this is a... Nothing we figured out by any means yet, but that is one of the things I have found that I think does work, is like getting a little risque and just kind of getting your freak on and not getting arrested. And in addition to that, talking about the the sexual tension and the, the sexual magic and mystery, there's also just the strength of the relationship. Like I, I think of relationships as babies so you got to feed it and take care of it and so some of the things that we've we've been implementing um and seem to work at least at times yes i know that's where i'm segueing to you no so some tools that i found um that have helped with relationships and again a tool is like only as good as how you use it but um one thing is an appreciation stone Um, and that can be any object. For me, it's always been a stone, and I feel like it's a good tool in a relationship that just helps remind you to give appreciation. So the idea is if you find that in your pocket, um, let that be a reminder. Say something you appreciate about your partner. Then you hand them the stone. Um, Yeah, if your relationship gets to, like, enough, there's enough bad happening, I'm not trying to say any of these, like, oh, that'll save it, but it is a positive thing that helps, I think. Um, and then when your partner finds it, you know, she gives you an appreciation and it goes back and forth. We actually found a little stone that is the shape of a heart that we found during one of our backpacking trips on the mountains of sea trail. So it was just kind of a perfect symbol for us. Um, and we kept it not knowing we'd use it as an appreciation stone. Just, oh, isn't that cool? I think I gave it to you while we were hiking. Mm-hmm. Um, another tool is a memory book. It can be really easy to focus on the negative. I've even heard that we're, we have evolved, we're wired for that, because noticing the negative could be a hazard, a danger. It's more important for your brain to record. Positive things are just to be enjoyed, but it doesn't matter if you uh, remember them or not. You run into another positive thing you've forgotten, oh, you take joy again. Mm. You forget a negative thing, you might hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. So it can be difficult to remember the good stuff and a memory book is another thing that you can take turns with write down a good memory um just something good that happened with your time together then your partner you know i I like to like read it out loud to my partner when i've um, written it then she takes a turn and it's just another um mnemonic device a way to remember to appreciate each other And one more I'd pass on is Rosebud and Thorn. This is something I learned from an outdoor educator at a survival class I took, and I've been doing as a teacher at my camps for a long time. It's a way to share. Uh, At camp, we do it at the end of every day. Teresa and I do it every night. Rose is something, usually for us, everything that you liked about your day, all the good parts. Thorn are things that weren't necessarily bad that they could be but were challenging. Um, I always say I think a a day is not perfect if it doesn't have at least one thorn because we grow through challenges. 
and bud is something you're looking forward to. So it gives us a really good tool to uh, share at the end of every day and check in, and we find that there's, I think, always more roses than buds um, or thorns. And, um, yeah, Teresa, you got anything you want to say about the, especially the rosebud and thorn? I really like it because I also think that if you're having problems in your relationship, it's not about being passive aggressive and being like, oh, and another thorn today is like, yeah, we, uh, we had some miscommunication. But if you bring it up, then the other person is like, yeah, I, I feel that way too. And you can kind of bond over that. So even if you've been having differences of opinion all day long, you can be like, yeah, we kind of did have some challenges today. And maybe Bud would be working on having a better day tomorrow. Yeah, and sometimes we're really tired, and so it'll be like one thing, one good thing, one hard thing, one thing we're looking forward to. You can condense it. Um, another tool that I just happened across at the library was a book. And I used this book at a kind of crucial time in our relationship together. But it was called Fight Less, Love More by Lori Pune. And... Her premise for the book is there are certain key phrases that you can use to help avoid dumb arguments, unnecessary arguments, etc. But something in the beginning of the book that really stayed with me was that you're, you and your partner have to agree that this relationship is worth saving, whether it's to be romantic relationship, platonic, or something in between. Um, but you really have to agree to like appreciate each other, respect each other, and listen to each other. So all of these really good qualities of a relationship. And Lori Pune, the lady that wrote Fight Less, Love More, she also mentioned a book that I started to read, but then I was kind of like, eh, I, I don't really need this right now. And it was called uh, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And just real quick, the five love languages are, uh, they're actually ways in which you perceive love. Um, that could be from your parents, your friends, or your romantic partner. So here are the five. Physical touch, quality time, acts of service, gifts, and words of encouragement. I'm a quality time guy. Are you now? I think so. <laughs> Is there ever any limit to the quality time I could give to you? To a fault. Oh. <laughs> So, um, so you might be a combination of these, and it's it's really just kind of good to you can take like a free quiz online or something and see what love language you are and your partner, or your person in your life, um, and maybe you think that doing a lot of acts of service means that that's how you show love. Maybe you make your partner coffee every morning and make sure that you know the bedding is rolled up and maybe pack his lunch for the day or something. But he doesn't necessarily perceive that as love. He might think that that's nice, but it doesn't mean it doesn't show love. Maybe his love language is physical touch. And so if you haven't held his hand or rubbed his shoulders or kissed him or, or something of that nature, then he's just feeling like, why are you not loving me today? So you can start to see where this opens up a lot of dialogue with your partner. And uh, let's see. Gumby, did you want to talk about... That last, well, second to last night? Absolutely not. Oh. Um, so we also want to talk a little bit about breaking up, and, you know, like, that's something couples, I think, 
it's pretty common if you spend a lot of time together that you have like a lot of breakups, whether they're minor or major. Um, and I'd say, I feel like the older I'm getting and the more I feel like I'm learning, a lot of that is expectations. You know, we get in a relationship and we think it's supposed to be one way. I was teaching whittling today. Actually, as I'm hearing myself talk about this, it reminds me of what I told the kids about whittling. It's halfway what you want it to be, halfway your will, and halfway what it wants to be. Hmm. Um, when I told them to whittle spoons, you know, I was like, you got an idea, and it's important to picture that because that gives you focus. You've got to be able to picture what you want. But what's going to happen is the wood's going to have a say in it too, and that spoon's going to come out different than what you want. And you got to be open to that if you want a really good spoon. I think that's true of relationships too, that we want certain kinds of relationships. And then often if we look for them, this relationship could be something good. It's, you got to take into account of what the relationship, the dynamic, the plus sign between the two personalities wants to be. Where does it work? Um, I'd say that's something I'm, I'm working on considering because the old paradigm of the monogamous relationship where everybody gets married, um, that didn't seem to work. There was a big oppression of women, guys, like, you know, there were all kinds of protests against this whole suburban, like, go to work every day ethic that the guy did um, that you don't get taught about in history classes. I've been reading all about it. Like, it's wide, known, recorded stuff about um, hobos and tramps and this whole homeless movement, especially in the 30s and 40s. But not everybody wanted to do that. Um, so Not that, everybody wanted to do what? Be a part of that society where, like, the guy does the guy uh -huh. thing, the woman does the woman right. thing. We look back and say the woman's oppressed. I think we forget to look back as often and say the man was also oppressed. Mm -hmm. This is an oppressive way for both people to live. And it led to a lot of unhappy people. Um, when I see people that are married long-term, I'm not inspired. I feel like I see a lot of resignation, a lot of just like, eh, as good as it gets. But I think, I don't know, I want more out of life. I'm not inspired by that. And I would say th I'd say the same thing about open relationships. I don't see a lot of them that inspire me. I see a lot of people that are in denial, that are burying hurt feelings, that communication is falling apart, um, that people, one side is getting served more than the other, and the other side is just so attached to their partner, they'd rather like be treated less than they want to be treated, than not have them at all. Uh, but, yeah, I'd say you got to leave room for figuring out what your relationship is because I think there's exceptions to that and plus all kinds of other relationships. And I, I think that's really profound what you said because I was there when you were teaching the kids and it was like, yeah, this piece of wood in front of me that I'm whittling, I'm really having expectations that I want this to be a spoon. And... Maybe it's just not ever going to be a spoon. Like maybe that piece of wood, if you're following along, is telling you that um, this is going to be something else. And maybe it could be something beautiful that you haven't even thought of yet because you've limited yourself to that expectation. Yeah, I've learned not to be so quick to let go of a relationship. Any relationship I've let go of, I felt like I did it prematurely. Um, just to kind of let them unfold because there's always a chance and I, it, it breaks my heart how often this doesn't get to happen. The relationship could transition into something equally good, if not better, but people get so caught up that they didn't work on this one level that you lose people that could be dear friends too often. And, uh, 
yeah, it, that's just one of the many things that we choose that we don't have to. And I'm going to have, ooh, I'm going to have, well, I don't want to say the final word, but I'll just talk briefly about my own my own thoughts on how I wish society could be different. And I'm not, I haven't studied any of this really, but I've, I've sat with it a long time. And I feel like when I've been around women, um, whether they're my friends or not, there seems to be that energy that's able to be built up. We talk, we try to figure things out in our own way. We've got emotional outbursts that we kind of can understand in each other, even if maybe someone's more dramatic. But women tend to understand women. I mean, like Gumby was telling about that book before, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Nobody understands women. Nobody understands women, even women. But I think women do a better job. And I can't speak from experience about being a man, but I can say (laughs) that if I had a strong tribe where the people that I interacted with every day were women. I don't think I would have as many uh, day-to-day issues with romance and emotional outbursts and feelings running all over the place. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's so draining, and it just takes up a lot more time than I think you need to have. So my idea is to go back to tribe where the women do their work, the men go out and hunt, and occasionally, maybe a man and a woman gets together, um, or man and man, whatever, woman, woman, <laughs> um, they get together and they have a beautiful experience of sex. Maybe they're in a deeper committed relationship, but it's fluid enough that if the man goes out and the women are together and it's strong and you don't need to have all these worries in your heart and in your head that if the man comes back and he decides he doesn't want to be with you, it's okay because you have the rest of your tribe. You're not trying to do this by yourself, desperately clinging to someone and making yourself too available. And then that person doesn't even want you because you did that. So I think women, if it were me, we'd all like be doing our stuff together and the men would come around occasionally and maybe we'd have a good time. Yeah, and in lieu with what Teresa's describing, like a healthier culture that we both agree would be tribal. Um, I agree it would look more like how Teresa describes and also just in general. um, I feel like none of us by living in a tribal culture, even outside of how men and women would interact, we're all feeling unhealthy and insecure. And you get a whole group of people like that and try to have them figure out how to get along. Socializing is really a challenge just in general, I think. Um. We covered a lot. There is a lot to cover. I feel like Gumby could maybe do a sex podcast just separate. Mm -hmm. Um, But for now, this is our... We could do a masturbation podcast separately. Oh. Two hours. For now, I think that's all we've got. Um, Check out our website for links to our YouTube channel videos, as well as our blog about the Mountains to the Sea Trail backpacking and hitchhiking. And there's also stories about our survival overnights and houseless retreats. And the website is www.escapingsociety, all one word, dot weebly, W-E-E-B-like-boy-L-Y, dot com, escapingsociety.weebly.com. 
And if you have any questions, concerns, comments, please contact us. You can do that on our website, escapingsociety.weebly.com. Thanks for listening. See ya.